3: With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey folks, welcome to the Team House. This is episode 106. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host Dave Park. Our guests tonight are Ryan and Christina Hillsberg. They are former CIA officers. They just authored a new book that we're going to talk about. But also, even beyond that... They were a husband and wife CIA team. Um, They actually did joint ops together, uh, joint missions together, working together. Christina served in the Directorate of Analysis uh, as an analyst, and Ryan served in the National Clandestine Service as an operations officer, uh, but they also worked together in the field. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. I think it's going to be a really unique, insightful view that these two are going to be able to offer. So uh, Christina and Ryan, thank you for joining us tonight.
4: Hi, thanks so much for having us.
3: Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, So if you've ever seen the show before, you know our first question. It's always the same. We want to know about your origin story. We want to know about where you guys came from, how you found your way into the CIA. And then, of course, since this is kind of a, uh, a, a mutual journey together, how you met.
4: Sure. So we both actually joined the CIA right out of college. So I was recruited because of my foreign language capabilities. I went to Indiana University and studied Swahili and Zulu. And a recruiter came onto my campus, my professor had, you know, sent me the flyer, I sent my resume, they didn't say it was CIA, I just thought it was like some low level government agency. And blew off the first interview, lied, and said that I had car trouble. And the recruiter called me and said, hey, I'm staying in town an extra day. I'd really love to meet you. And I got the impression right away. And then it was confirmed in the interview, which was they were really interested in African language speakers because it was hard for them to find. And so when I found out in the interview, it was CIA he explained to me that I would be analyzing African politics. I would be have opportunities to travel back and forth to Africa and write for the president and use my language skills. And so I was really excited about it. And thankfully I had a pretty smooth security clearance process and I was in the door in only four months, which is virtually unheard of Yeah, and um, became an analyst. And so I'm going to let Ryan share his story.
2: Yeah. For me, you know, I I wasn't quite sure. I knew I always wanted to go into the CIA, but I wasn't sure how, that was actually done, you know, watching movies growing up as a kid, you know, James Bond, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I, I wanted to be James Bond or Indiana Jones, you know, yes. I wasn't quite sure how to get there either way. Um, but at the heart of it, I really wanted to serve my country. Uh, my father was in the army, my grandfather was in the army and, and I wanted to do something, um, and, and follow them really, <clears throat> uh, in that realm. And so I, I, in college, I was really trying to think of what I wanted to do. And you know, the military was definitely at the top of my list. Um, CIA was number one. Uh, I also applied to Secret Service, ATF, DEA, U.S. Marshals, all of them. And the, the first two that I heard back from were CIA and Secret Service. Uh, and so since uh, the agency was my number one top pick, I continued to, to move on in, in, the, in the process with them. And that was my junior year of college. And so it was actually my junior year right before my senior year started. And it took me about 12, 18 months. I can't remember exactly, but it was over a year. And so by the time I went through the process and did the background and, um, you know, all the, the psychological testing and polygraphs, et cetera, et cetera, uh, language aptitude testing, uh, I got a, an offer of employment and uh, started straight out of school. And, and so coming into the agency was my first, you know, real professional job and as an adult.
0: What, what had you how had you prepared for that since that's what you had wanted to do did what were you studying in college did, i mean did you focus on that um so i you know
2: we're having a lot of uh, talks right now with our kids because our, our oldest is, is off to college actually next week uh over to wsu and you know i, I told her not to do what i did <laughs> I, I got a i got a degree i, I have two bachelor's degrees I, I got one in political science and the other in philosophy um, and I was also contemplating going into law school as well. And so I had a few different things, um, on, on my plate that I was looking at. And, um, yeah, I just, um, that's what I studied and, um,
4: But he had foreign languages too. That's why he's giving out. He spoke fluent Danish already <laughs> and comes from a French family. And so they knew that he, you know, was good with like. I spent a lot of time
2: overseas. You know, for example, I spent a summer in France when I was 14 years old. Uh, had traveled quite a bit throughout Europe with my family and uh, my mother's French. Uh, she was born in, in La Rochelle in France and uh, my grandmother's family is is all still over there. And so, yeah, I had a lot of inna- international experience and exposure um, and then just had, you know, again, that drive to, to, to serve the country in some way, shape or form.
0: A lot of times I think people, you know, they ask our guests, they ask us how people get into the CIA. And I think there's this impression that they only want people from special operations and things like this, but you guys sort of make it sound as though really having those language skills are, are one of the things that'll get you that, that initial look. I
2: think so. Um, definitely there, there's former military, uh, personnel of course in there. Uh, but in, in my uh, farm graduating class, there were actually a lot of lawyers. Um, I was actually surprised at how many, uh, people had been to law school and, and were working in the private sector uh, and and came on board, and so I, I think there's a realm of people that they're looking for. I think it's uh, more than anything, it's the sort of psychological and, and sort of mindset that you have, you know, especially for the director of operations. You know, people that people that have a black and white mentality don't do well at the farm. You know, mm-hmm. you have to be able to live and work in that world of gray. And there's not necessarily a right answer every time. And, and the phrase that's often used at the farm in training is, "It depends." The answer is always going to depend on a number of factors and experiences, the geographic location, the person, um, the situation, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have to be able to learn and deal with ambiguity and have critical thinking skills. And, and if you're lacking in any of those areas and if you and if you truly have that black and white view or mentality of the world, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to get through that training.
4: And I think on the analytics side, you know, you really do see more often than not people who have a specific regional expertise, you know, and and the language expertise I think gives you a competitive edge people ask us a lot, you know, which language should I study or which region? But I always reply and say, you know, the needs and the, you know, are always changing and Mm. the world is always changing. Of course, there are some constants. Um, But I encourage people to study something that they're really interested in, right? I mean, I studied Africa and African languages, and I can't tell you how many people told me that I was never going to get a job. Why was I studying something so niche? And I was the first of all my friends to get a job. And, And it was a pretty badass one. So, I mean, thankfully it worked out for me, but I knew that I was studying something that I was really interested in. So whether it was CIA or whether I went the humanitarian route, I knew that I wasn't just choosing something because I thought someone would want, you know, that would make me competitive. Like it was something that I was truly passionate about. Yeah.
2: And, I, and I think too, you know, I, I know a lot of people that came into the agency that spoke fluent Russian, you know, or they had Spanish or, or some of European language, uh, but it's all about the mission. You could be coming in with a language skill and then they're sending you to Arabic training, you know, or Farsi training. And so Um, You know, I think the ability to learn a language and your language aptitude, I think, is probably more important than anything.
3: Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think this is also a really unique opportunity, since we have both of you here today, is to talk about the difference between NCS and the, well, it's called the Directorate of Intelligence now, correct, Christina?
4: So now it's the Directorate Of Analysis. Of Analysis. And it was the DO and then it was NCS. And now I believe it's back to the DO, right? Have we heard that? So I guess it's the DA and the DO. (laughs) I know.
2: (laughs) I I think every time there's new leadership that comes in, yeah, they try to make their mark on the organization. And so they're they're gonna change names, they're gonna change processes. But I, I think some of the tried and true names and things that have lasted, you know, decades you know they are they're always coming back to it and so
3: so um, but but you two coming together i mean from do and di i I mean what happened to like the separation of church and state like this is not supposed to happen right
4: Yeah, it's true. You know, I swore that I would not date another ops officer, let alone marry one. You know, I had definitely come into contact with some James Bond wannabes, you know, lots of ops officers who try to use their tradecraft on you in practice. And so I had sworn them off, you know, and we met in our training class in preparation for this field tour that we were both doing. And he had actually come back to headquarters for the class. He was already out in the field and I was preparing to go out. And so we had gone around the room and said, you know, where we were about to go. And when he said where he was, I kind of like zeroed in, you know, on him and another, Oh, oh, in the class to make sure I would introduce myself because I was going as an analyst on this particular rotation where I was going to be able to do operational work. But I knew that in order to be successful at doing ops work, I was going to need these ops officers to trust me and respect me, even though I was coming from the analytic side. I wanted them to, you know, know that I had something to bring to the table other than analytic expertise. You know, I could actually collect intel too. And so during the break, I went and introduced myself to both of them. Um, but was, you know, obviously very interested in him, but we only exchanged a few words. And then it wasn't for months later when I got out to the field where we connected and we, you know, started dating right away. And
2: She's trying to fast forward something. So in the, in this class, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was, of course, attracted to her and, and, and was looking at her, and was excited when she actually came over and told me that she was going uh, to the same field station that I was already at. and And I could tell I got this sense. I got the vibe from her. I got the I have a boyfriend vibe complete I definitely got that
4: and I did yeah.
2: <laughs> but then I also got if I didn't have a boyfriend I'd be the, I'd be really into you vibe it's like and wow so, these
4: are some complex vibes I was giving off this is like operates operations officer like at work like he, this is right. tradecrafted action he,
2: he, right <laughs> and so I made a mental note and, and was really starting to count down the days because it was going to be a few more months before she actually got out to the field and so it was definitely counting down the days and, until she got there
4: Well, he was different than, you know, a lot of the ops officers I had met. And I think one of the biggest draws to me was that he was so well-rounded and, you know, ops officers have to be well-rounded in order to build these relationships of trust with their targets, you know, and then recruit them and into a clandestine relationship with the agency. So they really need to have a lot of interest themselves and be well-rounded so that they're able to kind of build that rapport and that relationship of trust through the common ground. And, you know, at the agency, we call that you, me, same, same. But the way I had seen a lot of ops officers do it, it just wasn't as genuine. They would pretend to be interested in something and and then they would try to practice on people in the building, even though that was a big no-no. But Ryan was so different because he actually was that interesting, right? He was someone who could bake bread from scratch. He could talk medieval knives, but he could also cook, you know, from Julia Child's recipes. You know, he could play multiple instruments, speak multiple languages. So he was just so Fascinating, and that he had an ability to recruit assets with a a lot more authenticity than I was used to and more integrity. And so I thought, well, you know, let's give this guy a chance. I knew he had three kids and he was a divorcee with three kids. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) just kidding. Actually, I had a couple of strikes against me. (laughs) they didn't set me running, obviously. It didn't bother me a bit because I was so um, just kind of fascinated with him.
3: Could could you talk a little bit, since we have you two here, um, a little bit about the difference between uh, God I don't DI and DO if those are the terms we're going to go with um, for some of the folks out there who might not know and how that interaction is um, between the two.
4: So the DI it, it basically all plays into the intelligence cycle, and so I guess maybe we yeah, should start think, with DO. Yeah, I think yeah. It, I mean it
2: starts with the DO. You know, on, <laughs> the tip
4: of the spear. Tip the right.
2: of the spear, right? And so the director of operations, you know, they're really tasked with recruiting. Um, assets, you know, with access to information of interest overseas, you know, whether that's, um, you know, foreign government officials, um, businessmen, businesswomen, et cetera, et cetera, um, or even, you know, terrorist groups and nefarious organizations. Uh, anything that we or the U.S. government needs to have some information on, we're out there trying to collect. And trying to steal that information. And so, you know, we've got, you know, there's operations officers all over the world uh, that are, you know, spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting, uh, agent handling, uh, and of course, terminating assets, um, you know, once that, um, you know, uh, access to information dries up or, or we need to focus on something else. And so, uh, operations officers, they're, they're, they're collecting intelligence, they're meeting with assets out in the field, they're coming back to their station. And they're writing up that raw intelligence. Uh, and, and so, for example, I might go meet, you know, someone for two or three hours, um, collect uh, maybe three, four intelligence reports. I write those up. I send them back via cable traffic. Uh, th- those intelligence reports then go to, to, to Langley. And then that's where the DI comes in.
4: And then we're analyzing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these reports that come in, you know, considering like the source descriptions to see how much weight we're going to give the report. And we're kind of analyzing all of them to create a full picture of whatever the situation is. So, you know, I was working on sub-Saharan Africa for my career and as an analyst. And so, you know, maybe I'm looking at disputed elections in a particular region. And so I'm looking at all this reporting and I'm creating analytic assessments based on not just what the clandestine officers have collected in the field, but also, you know, there's signals intelligence, there's open source intelligence, you know, there's all these different ints as we call them that I'm, you know, looking through that are coming through our system and, and analyzing and, and creating this picture and this analytic assessment with a bottom line up front that we're providing for the president in the president's daily brief book, you know, as well as other policymakers, either in the form of written products or briefings. You know, we are the subject matter experts that are going to look at everything the ops officers have collected and, you know, the linguists have collected as well, you know, from NSA. And basically tell our leadership what it all means objectively. You know, this is a situation on the ground. Here's what's happening, here's why it's happening, here's the impact, here's the outlook. And then ultimately, what are the opportunities and implications for the United States?
2: Well, I think Christina mentioned something really important. You know, you know, she and others like her analysts, they are the subject matter experts. You know, a lot of the operations officers in the DO were generalists. You know, one day we might be collecting intelligence, you know, on you know, a foreign government, you know, or counterterrorism or counterproliferation, and so we're sort of like a mile wide and an inch deep, and we have to be able to, like she said, you know, talk about you know a number of different topics. Um, and, and one of the phrases I use, my one of my philosophy professors told us this repeatedly, and I took several classes from him. But you know, he mentioned something that one should know something about everything, and everything about something. And I think that, that that's that really describes at least operations officers you know we do need to know something about everything especially within the world of intelligence and, and intelligence collection and then the one thing that we know a lot about is actually running clandestine operations and mm-hmm. so that's sort of the the mindset that a lot of uh, do officers have and and if do if do officers are smart so as an operations officer um when at all possible you know oftentimes we're we're one-on-one you know, with an asset, you know, we're going it alone, you know, everywhere. 99% of the time an operations officer is out there in the field doing their work alone. But when you have an opportunity to bring an analyst with you, which I did have on a number of occasions, bringing a subject matter expert with you to an asset meeting, it's, it's, it's night and day. That's super cool. they're able to ask questions and dive deep and dig deep. And so a meeting that I might've maybe only gotten one or two intelligence reports from, I bring a, a, an SME with me uh, from the director of intelligence or analysis, and I'm getting six or seven, Uh, especially if it's a hard target country or it's the subject matter is really in depth. uh, It's way better to have someone like that with you than going it alone.
4: Yeah. And I, and I, Go I think ahead. for analysts, even like on areas, so like for me, the tour that we met on, I was doing ops work and I was collecting intel. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why I was successful at it was the analytic expertise that I had. So even when I started collecting on parts of the world that I didn't know anything about, because I was so used to distilling Vast amounts of information so quickly, albeit on my area of expertise, but every day going through hundreds and hundreds of Intel reports and like that practice of thinking critically, conceptualizing papers and writing, you know, quick turnaround pieces. That skill set, then when I started collecting Intel, it transferred over. And so I was able to, you know, learn other subject matters and still be pretty quick and get a lot of Intel because I was so used to writing and had that analytic skill set. Right.
2: She dominated.
3: So this is breaking down that secular tradition of the separation between church and state. And it sounds like that's a good thing, right? To to combine, fuse these two capabilities together.
4: Yeah. And I know they've gone through a reorg like since we've left and they have more like mission centers um, at headquarters where they're working kind of more together. That goes in waves though. We've seen that happen so many times, you know, over the years where the divide between the DI and the DO is, you know, stronger and sometimes, and then there's more collaboration, it kind of ebbs and flows. But I think that When you are collaborating, I mean, it's just, you get more intel, you know, no matter what way you look at it when you're working together. And because you're coming at it with such a different skill set that can really complement each other, even in marriage. So there you go.
0: (laughs) As as like the subject matter expert, would you get uh, uh, like intel reports of things that case officers or ops officers had written that you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, They're getting (laughs) like, they're getting fed a line of bullshit because this does not fit into what's actually going on?
4: Oh yeah, for sure. And hopefully like you're in a situation where you are friends with your CMO and you can find out more about the source and you can kind of like be involved in that process and give that feedback. Like, Hey, this report doesn't really make sense. Or, you know, I don't know. (laughs) This is why. And here are follow-up questions. But yeah, I mean, we definitely experienced that. And, you know, sometimes there are ops officers who are really interested in numbers and, you know, things will sometimes make it out the door that shouldn't. And I think that's when, you know, the analyst can really help and provide that feedback and hopefully there's a close relationship there so that mm-hmm. you can catch does, things that maybe the, don't the, pass the giggle test.
3: Does, does the ops officer also have like a responsibility to report, even if it's a totally bogus report and type it up and even if, you know, it may correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there a section in the cable traffic where they're allowed to offer an opinion, be like, "Ah, eh, this sounds like nonsense? Yeah, I mean each in, each intelligence
2: report when it goes out you know, you sort of give some some credence or some insight into your into your asset. You know, are they reliable? How reliable are they? How, mu- how much operational testing have yeah. they gone through? And what
4: access? Is it firsthand, secondhand? And so then as an analyst, when you're reading this, you're taking it into consideration like, okay, this is firsthand access or this is secondhand, you know, and you can kind of weight it as such. From a
2: reliable or, you know, a vetted source or still, you know, in the process of vetting, you know, not yet, you know, fully reliable, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So how long had each of you been in the agency at the point that you met? We met in
2: 2012,
4: 2012. yeah almost
2: 10 years for me.
4: So I had been in six years when we met. yeah
0: okay And do uh, you guys you know want to tell us a little bit about your your time, your trips and your experiences up until that point?
4: Up until we met?
0: Yes, up until you met.
4: Sure
2: yeah yeah i mean i did i had done several uh overseas tours and um yeah had really um gotten into the groove of 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 being an operations officer i think your first tour overseas you know you're really learning and putting into practice a lot of what you learned at the farm Mm -hmm. and and i will say this in terms of the farm and preparation for your first overseas tour you know they really i I really appreciate how the agency trains uh, their officers and, you know, I've compared that to other government agencies and as well as private sector companies. And what I can say about uh, the agency is, you know, they really do a good job of, of training and, and really putting their officers through the fire. You know, being down at the farm for six, seven months, it's so stressful. It's so strenuous. They put you in, in, in really difficult situations with the purpose of, you know, preparing you and giving you confidence. And that hopefully once you're in the field, you know, anything that you do in the real world will pro- will hopefully be easy or easier than it was in training. And I, and I can honestly attest, um, having been in 13 years, nothing that I ever did in the field was as difficult or stressful as what I did in training. And I think that's a really good way of of training officers and giving you confidence and peace of mind. And so, you know, it's it's funny, once you get out to the field, you know, because of the way the training is developed, you know, you've sort of already done it all, mm-hmm. you know, but you've gone up against instructors and, and 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 you know ran cases and ran foreign ops etc cetera, etc cetera. and so it's just it's like another day you know in training but it, it's out in the field and so that first tour is where you're really getting set up for success and, and I, I got to share a story though because this was this was pretty funny uh, my first overseas assignment I'm there and you know you know, getting settled, you know, finding a place, getting, you know, getting settled into the embassy, et cetera, et cetera. But I go out for my first ops meeting, right? This is, this is the real one. My first real ops meeting of my life, you know, that's not in a training environment and I'm in my car and I'm no joke. I'm five minutes into my surveillance detection route, five minutes in and a bus cuts me off. I hit a curb. And my tire explodes. You, you I
4: don't know. even know this story. Yeah, you know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and and it, it was, it was ridiculous. I mean, I couldn't believe this was happening to me on my first assignment. And so here I am, I'm on the side of the road. I'm jacking up my car. Thankfully I had a spare tire in there. You know, you gotta be prepared for anything, right? And so <laughs> thankfully I did it pretty quick. I think I did adjust a couple of my cover stops but I ended up getting to my meeting on time. But I remember I was so hot, <laughs> I was sweating. I'm like, you know, how could this happen to me on my on my very first oh my uh, operational meeting? And um, but you know, got through it and 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 did well. And um, yeah, did uh, again several uh, overseas assignments, uh, PCS assignments, several TDYs, and um, you know. So by the time I met Christina, I was a, a honed, experienced operations officer and you know it was at that point in my career that i'd already done almost everything that i wanted to do uh-huh. you know, the only thing i hadn't done was be in senior management like be a cos uh, overseas uh, of a station and um didn't really want to do that either um <laughs> you know I, the, the the benefit of, of being an operations officer and being out in the field is actually being out in the field uh, and actually meeting with assets, meeting with assets and doing work you know uh you know pushing paper and, you know, um, editing cables, you know, before they go back to headquarters, that, that didn't really seem exciting to me.
3: Could, uh, could you tell us this story about where you, uh, learned to go scuba diving to get closer to an asset? Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah, there, <clears throat> there was, there was, um,
2: a foreign company that was involved in some illicit financing with, uh, a country of interest, uh, to the U S and we really needed, uh, this came as a high profile or a high um, a high priority request uh, from DC uh, for us to really find out some information about what was going on between this company uh, and this nation state. And so we, we looked at the company and we, we it was me and some targeters and a couple of other uh, ops officers. And uh, the targeters looked at the company and they tried to find, you know, who are the top three people that would likely have access to the information, to the information of interest that we that we wanted to go after, and so we we found the three people that we thought were um, you know best suited uh, in terms of access, and we did a deep dive on each of those individuals. We're looking at public records, financial records, um, social media information, clandestine information, if we had it, to really come up with a targeting package for each one. After we reviewed that and sort of vetted all that information, we then decided to go after one of them. And once we, we chose that one individual, we did an even deeper deep dive to really uncover everything that we possibly could. And, and once we did that, you know, we had a meeting and, and my, my COS said, you know, Ryan, we, we want you to go after this target.
4: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: And I was pretty excited because, um, you know, it was a good opportunity. Uh, It was a um, high priority target. And, you know, how you go after a target, though, there's so many different ways to do it. And as I looked at this individual and their life and who they were and, you know, some of the struggles they had, uh, some of the things that they liked, their strengths or weaknesses, what they enjoyed doing, uh, the one, one thing that kept coming back to me was that this individual you know, was passionate. The guy loved scuba diving. And in this particular city, there were several different scuba clubs. And he, 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 he was a member uh, of one of the scuba clubs and they met weekly. And so I, as I went through all the information that we had on him, I decided, you know what? I'm going to use the scuba club to get close to this individual. Um, and so went and bought some scuba equipment, uh, joined the scuba club, And I think they had their meetings like on Wednesday night or something and showed up. Now I didn't just show up, you know, unprepared. You know, I knew so much about this individual that I had a pre-planned sort of strategic objective. If I had an opportunity to talk to him, Mm -hmm. you know, basically if I had an opportunity, I was going to have a conversation with him from a to Z Mm -hmm. where I was going to ask him certain questions, which I likely knew the answers to that would lead us down a conversation that eventually you know at the end um you know there was a hook for a second meeting uh and that he liked me as an individual and wanted to meet with me again hopefully outside of the scuba club so i showed up to this this wednesday night club and sure enough he was there i mean i I knew he was going to be there because we had done our, our due diligence and our research and i ended up talking to him for about 45 minutes that night and you know long story short there was a definite uh, i call it a bromance you know um <laughs> happening and you know enjoyed talking to me and again I, I knew what to ask and and how to point and direct the conversation uh so that that was the case uh, mm-hmm. by the by by the end of our um discussion and so we made plans to meet for lunch you know next week downtown because we both we uh, we both work downtown we we're going to meet in the old city and um you know that just over the course of several months i started Meeting with him on a regular basis, once a week, uh, twice a week, and you know the one thing I'd say here is, you know, over the course of that developmental period, which depending on the target, you know, you could develop someone for three months, six months, or a year, or even two years, depending on on the country that they're from, what type of access they have, who the individual is, et cetera, et cetera. But during the that several month development process, I never once asked him about his work. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's important to, 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 point out now, if he talked about his job and his work and his employment and sort of put that on the table, you know, I'd attack it. You know, I'd ask questions. I'd be a good listening ear. Uh, I'd sympathize, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd ask all sorts of questions about it, but I never once brought up the topic of work. Uh. And, and, and that's definitely a strategic um, that's, tr- <coughs> excuse me, a definitely st- strategic in, in operational targeting. And, um, you know, met his wife, met his kids. And really for him, you know, I didn't, in in terms of what Christina was saying of being well-rounded earlier, you know, I didn't have any exposure to scuba diving, had never done it before. Um, And so I really, in, in that respect, I took on, you know, the role of, of, of student, you know, and he was really the teacher, like a mentor in terms of scuba diving. And that's how we were able to really build a strong bond and relationship of trust uh, that then continued the relationship forward, and so yeah, the, the scuba diving stories it's just—it's always good because, and I, and I love sharing it because, again, you can you can go after someone a myriad of different ways, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just one that was sort of unique and special. Yeah. So, so did you pitch them? So I didn't. Um, that, that, that was a turnover case. And so, you know, oftentimes, you know, you're only in country for a certain amount of time. Um, hopefully, you know, you have enough time to recruit and do a, a formal turnover to another uh, operations officer. Uh, it was still in the developmental phase uh, when I turned it over to my friend for them to, you know, uh, there was a, a threesome for a little bit, you know, uh, of us all hanging out and then I departed and uh, they continued the relationship. And so, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do it, but definitely had a, a, a hand in establishing it and making that strong
0: foundation. It's also, to me, it's interesting that you went as the student to allow him, right? You know, right. to be the expert. Where I think a lot of people would assume that you'd have you'd want to become an expert on the topic, also, so that you were like talking to him, speaking with him as. And don't
3: they teach you in the farm to scuba dive and shoot spear guns and stuff? <laughs> right. right, that's part of it.
0: Well, well, <laughs> oh, yeah. I wish. I wish. Only with the explosive tips, (laughs) yeah.
4: I think that's probably what a lot, you know, of people might consider doing, just like that, pretending to be an expert. And that gets back to the, you know, people if when it's not done in a genuine way, it's just not as successful. So I think Mm -hmm. what Ryan did really well in this scenario was he found a way to gain a new interest that this target had, but to still be genuine. You know, he genuinely wanted to learn to scuba dive, and who wouldn't want to scuba dive on someone else's dive you know, at at a very cool overseas location, you know? But he was genuinely excited, and then he embraced, you know, the truth, which is he's a novice scuba diver. What can you teach me? And I think that that's just a great example of how he was able to be really genuine in, you know, an operation that sometimes feels like there's, you know, manipulation is always involved with espionage. So it's a fine balance.
2: (laughs) Well, and I think the important thing to point out too, is that, you know, during the development process, you know, you're assessing them, you know, every time you meet, you're writing that up. You know, and you're assessing their their motivations, their vulnerabilities, their strengths, their weaknesses. What would make them turn? Right. What would make them betray their country? What could potentially make them betray? You know, their organization, uh, their company, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, sometimes it's you know, you have to have a fig leaf there. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. at the end, people want to hear those three letters, CIA. Mm-hmm. You know, to to get that confirmation. Other times, because you've assessed them, you know that if you say those three letters they're not down for it. And (laughs) and so, you know, it's, it's very subtle, you know, you're USG, you're this, you're that. And so, you know, you've done all that due diligence, you know, over the course of several months and you know what makes them tick, you know, and and we referenced this a few different times and it's it's talked about at the farm all the time. It's often like, you know, a marriage proposal, Mm -hmm. you know, an operations officer is not going to pitch an asset unless they know they're going to say yes. Mm -hmm. You know, these, these people that, you know, propose, you know, to their spouse and public
4: setting or propose to their girlfriend or
2: their boyfriend. And they're, they're not quite sure. Are they going to say yes? Are they not? I'm going to do it at the baseball game. So then, you know, they feel like they have to say yes, you know, in front of, you know, thousands of people. No, 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 no. Like if you're going to propose to someone, you better know damn sure they're saying yes, you know, across the table from you. And I think the same can be said, you know, from an operation officer's perspective and recruiting a target. Sometimes we do cold pitches. Of course, that does happen. Uh, I think those are more rare, but uh, you're not—you're not, you're not going to pop the question uh, unless you know what they're going to say. And because you've done the work, you know, you've assessed them over months, and you know whether it's ideology, you know whether it's financial, whatever reason that you know is going to make them commit and enter a formal clandestine relationship with you, you know, you—you've done that homework.
3: Mm-hmm. Thank- Christina, could you tell us about your career up until the point that you met Ryan? And uh, I mean, as an analyst, I think you were saying earlier uh, that you even got to make some trips overseas as well.
4: That's right. I so I actually when I started, I was at the Open Source Center, and that was largely because I came in as a linguist, and I was doing quite a bit of travel off the bat with the Open Source Center. And I was what that actually means, though, is you know historically it used to be called the Foreign Broadcast Information. Service system service, I think <laughs> FBIS. And then it changed to open source center and it fell under DNI and CIA at the time. And they historically did mostly linguistic work in their open source bureaus overseas, you know, translating, you know, native language newspapers and radio, but their role had evolved over time and they were doing more analysis. But they were, I basically felt like I was kind of at a disadvantage because I was reading all source analysis, but when I was writing my pieces, I could only use what I had found in open source. And so I did that for about a year and then I transitioned to um, the DI and was at headquarters and then thankfully was still working on Africa, was still able to use my expertise. And I was specifically a leadership analyst. So I was doing political analysis, but it was always focused on the foreign leader. So I was also writing psychological and biographic profiles of foreign leaders in my country so that if our president was either going there or hosting one of those foreign leaders, you know, they were ready to meet with them and knew what to expect as far as, you know, their leadership style, their history, how they interact with people, you know, pitfalls of things not to discuss, you know, ways that they can connect with them. And so that was something I really enjoyed. But yeah, I traveled quite a bit um, just for an analyst. You know, I had some really unique opportunities because I had the linguistic skills as Mm -hmm. well. So we would go on, you know, regional kind of... um, TDYs overseas, like, um, just to kind of see what's going on on the ground to inform our analysis, you know, that would happen for all analysts. But for me, I also got these additional TDYs because I had this linguistic skill. And there were very few, I mean, I could count the number on one hand of Swahili linguists at the time and the entire intelligence community. And so that meant that I got tapped for some pretty unique opportunities um, to travel overseas, and to um, East Africa specifically for my languages. And so that was really great. And so I got to do, you know, Sometimes it was anywhere from a week to several months at a time, you know, just depended what the needs were. And, you know, one of my, I think, um, favorite experiences overseas was actually when I was on um, the tour with Ryan and I wasn't working on Africa because I was collecting on you know lots of topics um, like ops officers do, but there was a need for Swahili linguists. And so thankfully I was able um, to TDY and um, I actually had detected surveillance and I had been through surveillance detection training by that point point and, um, it by the DO of course. And so I knew all of the things to look for. Right. And I wasn't even running an SDR at the time because I wasn't on and off, you know, I was overseas doing linguistic work, um, something entirely different that I wish I could give more details about. Um, but I was working like all night long. I was on this night shift and during the day I had a chance to go to the market and Ryan and I were dating at the time. And I thought, Um, I'm going to just go pick up like some little trinkets for the kids, you know, in the market. And so I wasn't even, you know, doing anything clandestine. But I realized as I was going through the market, um, the woman was speaking Swahili into her phone right in front of me, not knowing that I could speak the language, you know, and just giving a play by play of my every move to someone in the headphone. Just, okay, she's looking at the bags now. Okay, she's moving in this direction. And I just remember laughing to myself, thinking, well, gosh, I went through like and this goes to Ryan's point, like, you know, they prepare you for the hardest case scenarios. And here I'm thinking like, you know, detecting surveillance is going to be so difficult. And here I am like doing shopping and I just like hear them talking, assuming I can't understand them. And so it was pretty laughable. And I I thought, well, you know what? I will bore them with my shopping for the yeah. kids while there's another ops officer out there doing an actual operation and I will distract them and keep them here with me and they can just, you know, enjoy watching me shop. <laughs> well,
0: how do you determine when you're, you know, when you're in a foreign country and you you detect surveillance, how do you determine if that is a foreign service or if it's a criminal element that maybe just wants to rob? somebody from America or, or whatever else, like, how do you determine who that is that's following you?
2: I mean, you don't, you know, and I think one of the the misconceptions too, that you see a lot in the movies and and TV shows, et cetera, et cetera, is that you want to lose your surveillance, Uh you know, or that, you know, you're going to run a red light, you know, or you're going to, you know, try to ditch them on the freeway. That's the last thing that you're going to do. Um, You know, most surveillance teams, you know, there may be four or five people that are following you you know, whether it's a vehicular or on foot, et cetera, et cetera. And as soon as you start doing something spooky, you know, if, if you lose them, you know, or, or try to do anything out of the ordinary or, you know, look behind you and like stare at them, they're going to put 10, 15 people on you. Adjusting you know, the rearview mirror. Gonna be, they're they're going to lock you down right. and, you know, make it almost impossible to see them. And so, you know, you never want to lose surveillance. You know, you want to you confirm and not let them know that you've confirmed that you've seen them. You know, and if you're actually going to do an op, um, you know, you're gonna abort. You know, you're not you're not gonna take them with you or try to lose them on your on the way to your op. You're just not gonna go. Right. You know, and, and, and there's systems and, and and processes in place, you know, if you don't show up, you know, your asset knows what to do. It's a different day, it's a different time, a different place, location, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You've got your communications plan with them. But yeah, you definitely don't want to bearing be surveillance with you. And, you know you know, whether they're, uh, you know, the, the local intelligence service or security service or whether, whether they're a nefarious organization, you know, y- you wouldn't really know, you know, unless they were to wrap you up or right. pick you up. Right? right. And so, you know, then you
4: got bigger problems. <laughs> exactly.
2: And so, yeah, you're going to want to lull them to sleep. Right. right. Uh, and and that, that's, that's really the point. And, and for me, it, having been in 13 years, I never had surveillance ever uh on anything that i ever did but i did see surveillance um and 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 the one time i did i was actually so my as i mentioned earlier i have have a lot of family in france and so i was in france uh outside paris and it was a smaller small medium-sized city and you know there was a wedding there um one of my distant cousins was getting married and the whole family was there and we were like in the middle of the town square and we're just waiting around and I'm just sitting there sort of watching, you know, some, you know, security awareness, sort of watching everything unfold around me. And I, I see, I see a person walking, you know, who ended up being the target. And then I see the A position of a surveillance. Then I see the B position. And then I see the C position on the other side of the street. And then I see the target actually walk into a store and then I see a surveillance team set up on this store. Uh-huh. And then one of them does an intrusion in there with them. Uh-huh. And, I, and I'm watching and I'm looking at this. And of course, nobody else knows right. around me what's going on. Right. Um, but I do, you know, because I, I've, I've done both, you know, of course I've been trained in surveillance detection, but I've also uh, been on surveillance teams and, and I, not, I had an opportunity to be on surveillance teams before I actually went down to the farm. And so I, I, I knew even more intimately how surveillance teams operate and what they do. And so I saw this and sure enough, he was only in there for maybe three to five minutes, the target. Yeah. He he exited the shop and then I saw the the team get back into position again as this, as this target uh, continued down the street. And so that's actually the only time I actually saw real surveillance um, overseas. And it wasn't even for me, it was for someone else, some random. I don't know. I don't, and still to this day, I don't know whether it was, you know, training um, you know whether it was law enforcement, was whether it was a security service. Uh, I don't know, but it was fairly easy to spot.
0: So three to five minutes. Do you think that it was a cover stop, or do you think that it is, that they were just going in to do some shopping and didn't didn't
3: know at all that they were?
2: It, it was it was either cover a stop or they didn't know that they were getting you know yeah. surveilled.
3: Yeah. Well, I want to talk about um, you know you two working together. I'm going to do a couple uh, ad reads here from our sponsors. from the leaders in male grooming. Join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get your rocket ready for takeoff by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code Team20. It's Team20, guys. Go there now. You get 20% off when you use our discount code
0: and uh, jack and i have both used uh the manscape products and
3: we can't show you on the stream though i'm sorry we don't uh, want to get kicked we have YouTube. shown
0: each other and and it's impressive <laughs> <laughs> it's impressive so um, oh, no they're nice products because for any man who's ever tried to groom using like traditional clippers whatever you have to be careful because there's always it's the, dicey. There's, there's the inevitable it, it, yeah, very dicey that goes on and that's no fun Um, But the Manscaped, they have a shield on. They have a little light so you can see what's going on down under.
3: All right. The second uh, sponsor of today's show that I want to tell you guys about. No, no, this is a little bit more down, a little bit more tame. Uh, Bluebird Botanicals. Bluebird Botanicals is one of the oldest CBD, CBD companies in the industry. Founded in 2012, it made a name for itself through quality and transparency. They were the first company to make third-party lab tests for all CBD products publicly accessible on their website. They meet every quality standard in the book following all federal guidelines for dietary supplement companies and pushing for stricter regulations for hemp companies the first retail CBD brand in the country to earn its B-Core certification, which means they're dedicated to using responsible business practices and reinvesting profits back in the community. They offer a variety of CBD products. Uh, There's a cooling pain relief cream, and they have a uh, United We Chill broad-spectrum CBD, which that's the CBD oil that they sell. Uh, It's made from cannabinoids from hemp, with less than 0.01% THC, so go and check out Bluebird Botanicals. Uh, do we have a website for them, D? Is it up on the screen? BluebirdBotanicals.com. Okay. Cool. Team fifty so, for fifty percent.
0: Team fifty for fifty percent off. And I tell you what, I've been using that cream, the, the yeah. with the menthol and CBD oil. I, I don't know if you guys. I mean, like, I have a lot of arthritis and stuff due to you know. <laughs> Due to <do> life, life. <laughs> and, um, I, I, it's, it's nice I, I really enjoy it uh, uh, I really have been enjoying that
3: So let's talk about now you two getting Deployed together I mean you told us a little bit about Your first meeting you were kind of getting You know ginned up for an operation um, Pick it up From there please Yes
4: yeah, so we met out here and we Actually um, well Out on that tour and we um, Actually were able to do a case together right off the bat because it was my subject matter expertise, it was an African um, someone with access to an African country leader, and we ran that case together, and that was an interesting one. Oh, is
3: is is, is this the 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 mistress case you were telling me about?
4: No, this is the this is the shoe. The oh, the shoe. <laughs> the shoes. Ah, know, so we okay. This, um, we had this asset who you know he wasn't always particularly truthful. And that's something that, you know, you're constantly kind of assessing your asset um, and making sure that the information that they're providing you is authentic and true and accurate and that they are who they say they are, right? And there are various ways that you can do these ops tests. And um, this person was going to be um, traveling and meeting with a senior leader of this other country and had, you know, purported to have this relationship, this friendship with this leader. And so, of course, we wanted him to go with a gift for the leader. And so we had said, you know, get whatever gift you think is culturally appropriate. And, you know, just give us the receipt and we'll reimburse you for it. And he came back and I said, oh, you know, what did you get him? Like, what was the gift? And he says, oh, a pair of shoes. And like Ryan wasn't at the meeting. He, he had another meeting at the time. So I was by myself and I just said, um, really, like that's that's such a personal you know, gift, you know, how, how did you know what size shoe he even wore? And he said, well, you know, all people, all men from this country wear a size 10. (laughs) And, And I thought, really? And he said, yeah, my twin brother, size 10 I'm like, oh, you know that, that kind of makes sense i guess but and he's like yep all men from this country um wear this size and so i just said okay and i took the receipt and i thought gosh that's like really odd and and i remember getting back to station and telling ryan and ryan's like he bought himself a pair of shoes and i'm like oh my gosh you're right and the thing is like you know, he probably was going back. He was going to this meeting. He was wanting to look snazzy because this was a very senior leader. And and the thing is, if he had just been truthful with us and said, hey... I'd really like to buy a new pair of dress shoes before I go for this meeting, you know, would you guys be willing to cover that for me? Then the answer would have been absolutely. You know, we want you to look the part. We want you to feel confident and be ready for this meeting. But like the, the problem was that he wasn't honest. And like I said, it wasn't the first thing that he was dishonest about. And ultimately that case, you know, was, was terminated because of some, um, what suitability issues, I guess you'd say. Um, but that was one of the fun cases that we ran together and, um, so- yeah, and ultimately, I mean, we were on a three-year tour together, and then we decided to leave just based on our own personal situation. You know, I mentioned Ryan already had three kids at the time from a previous marriage, and we could not do another tour with them. Mm-hmm. The situation was such that they needed to be um, in the states, and we wanted to be with them, and so we both left for the private sector, and that was in two thousand what fifteen? Yeah, yeah. So,
0: so you got to this 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 location, you had already. Ryan, you had had the vibes. You'd gotten the vibes. <laughs> um, Christina, did you still have that boyfriend when you showed up?
4: No, you know it didn't. It didn't um, last through the relocation. <laughs> <to> yeah,
0: <say. laughs> and and how long did you wait to recruit her, Ryan? So I, I made I made quick work. So I think <laughs> her first day in the office just.
2: Um, I actually started instant messaging you first. Is that right? Yeah.
4: There's an internal system. So he had a different name. You know, I, I was in a, like a separate office and he was like out in the bullpen. And um, he like, you know, was right outside my office, but like it at his desk and you know, he's like, Hey, you know, it's me right out here. (laughs) Try to like, let me know. Cause you know, he had a a pseudonym, a funny name and we were kind of pinging back and forth. And it's funny because going back to that whole, like being well-rounded. And at the time I was like, not very genuine because I just was like trying to make myself sound like way cooler than I actually was. Because the reality was, you know, I was an analyst coming from headquarters, you know, DC area, who you are and what you do for a living are basically interchangeable. And I I was a workaholic. I mean, I didn't have a family at the time. I was single and in my 20s for most of my agency career. And I lived and breathed work. I didn't uh-huh. mind being there late at night to sign off on edits and then returning back at 4.30 or 5 in the morning to pre-brief for the PDP. Like, I loved it. And so when I got on this tour and I was now undercover and people asked, you know, what I like to do... You know, I realized like I didn't really have a lot of hobbies because I had been so focused on work and I was used to being able to say, Well, I work on Africa. And that was really no longer the case because I was working on a lot of different things. And so he's like, you know, telling me all these things that he does. Want to go scuba you know, diving? Yeah, you know, would you like to do these things with me? And I'm like, sure. I mean, I agreed to like go skiing. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know how to ski. Yeah, you can teach me how to ski and all these things. And I will say that, you know, that was how many years ago? That was nine years ago. I've yet to ski. But this winter, at the end of the season, we bought some, Brian insisted on me getting some used skis. And so that, like, the expectations, you know, if I don't do it, you know, it's we didn't break the bank. And he's insisted that I learn to ski next winter. So I've put it off for almost 10 years when I I was trying to sound like really cool and adventurous, but I will say he has made me much more adventurous and I've, you know, collected a lot more hobbies in the past, you know, almost 10 years, but he's, yeah, putting me to the test. I'm going to actually ski. So we were kind of connecting on all these things, you know, and we went out, I think like that first weekend and, um, yeah, I mean, it, it got pretty serious pretty quickly. And I think, you know, when there are kids in the equation, of course I didn't meet the kids right away, but, you know, I think he knew that, you know, you don't really waste time. Like, you know, if there are kids involved, especially once I met them, we knew that it was serious and, you know, and that we were ultimately going to get married. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So by the, so, but when you guys ran that first stop together, you guys were already at least dating or exploring that. So was it, Yeah. did that make it exciting to do an op together?
4: Yeah, it was fine, but it made it complicated. Like yeah. technically the rules and station would be like, you know, it's like a nepotism thing. Like if you were in each other's chain of command, which we actually weren't at all because uh. I was still considered DI. And so I actually reported to different management. And so technically it should not have been an issue at all, but um, they're a little bit particular about letting us do some things. So they let us do cases together until we got married and then we were no longer allowed to. Um, which is unfortunate because technically from a, from an analyst who does see the world in black and white, a lot of times we weren't breaking any rules. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was fun to, to be able to spend that time together. We love working together. I mean, we, you know, having those cases together and like there were a number of other things that we did together as well. Like we just genuinely enjoy spending that time together. And then even after we left the agency, we both ended up working at Amazon and having some of our work overlap there for a time. And that was really great. And then most recently, you know, we collaborated on our, book together. And so we can say that we genuinely enjoy that time. And and I think probably what's changed so much since my becoming a stay-at-home mom and a writer full-time is that I'm not in an office on some sort of internal message system with him anymore because I was at the agency (laughs) and then we were both at Amazon. And so I was used to like basically having access to him all day long. Like We would talk internal chat, we would have meetings together, and then we still wanted to spend time together at the end of the day, which I think is a really great sign. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's been like an, an adjustment just in the past you know, a couple of years, and that, you know, we do have different, um, you know, day to day lives and more separate than we used to. So I think ha- writing this book together over the past, you know, year or so has been an opportunity to collaborate um, together and again, again. And that's been really enjoyable for us.
2: Well, and one thing I'd want to say too, just about that tour that we did overseas together, is that, you know, what makes Christina very, very unique is that she is someone i mean an analyst by training but then was able to do field you know operational work and actually meet with assets collect intelligence submit those intel reports you know back to langley and she was able to do both extremely well she was able to successfully be an analyst and successfully be an ops officer and you know traditionally speaking those are two separate, distinct, completely Mm -hmm. different worlds. Um, So much so that, you know, Christina was the number two intelligence producer, you know, at this station, um, out producing, you know, formerly farm trained operations officers that had done multiple tours, you know, several of them. She was coming back, you know, meeting after meeting, intel report after intel report, and just blowing them all away. Um, But I was
4: second to... This guy I was right number here. one. So, <laughs> I was I, I'm, but, at least, know. if you're going to be second to someone, at least it's your husband, and you know he's very talented. <laughs> I, I, but yeah, I mean, I'll say I really enjoyed the ops work, and Ryan likes to say that if we had stayed in, that he thinks that I would have, you know, officially sure. transitioned to the DO. I don't know. I think maybe I would have because she there was were, too good not to. There were definitely moments of frustration for me because there were limits to what I was allowed to do because I was not farm. You know, I was not ops certified at the farm. Like right. I had some ops training but not the full certification that ops officers are required to have, right? So like, I was able to do some things by myself, but there were other things that I had to have kind of like a babysitter, which was hard because... You know, I remember one um, trip where I was meeting an asset in a third country and I wasn't allowed to go by myself because I wasn't ops certified, which I get it, that makes sense. But I had like an ops officer come along with me to like essentially babysit me Mm -hmm. and like not do any of the work. You know, I was doing all of the work, you know, Mm -hmm. collecting all the intel and they just got to sit in and like, you know, get credit for it, which sucks. So probably if I had stayed, I think I really would have been tempted to get that ops certification so that I could have like fully done all of the things, but I mean, at the end of the day, I really love being an analyst. And probably what I miss the most is writing, which is obviously why I'm doing that full time now. So it would it would have been hard. I don't know what I would have done. But both yeah. sides, I mean, they're just so interesting. And so I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to kind of dabble in both. Yeah, well, that's really I rare. That, I
2: think that says something too that she wasn't op certified, hadn't done that training at the farm, but was still dominating. Because at the end of the day, you know, an, an ops officer and a lot of our training. It comes down to social skills. Right. It comes down to people skills. It comes down to common sense and logic, mitigating risk. And and she... She was great.
4: Well, right. I also had help. I mean, I still remember because I had gotten out to the field and I had to go back to headquarters to do the SDR training, the surveillance detection training. And we always say that, like, a lot of this training is is designed, like, you know, very difficult. And they're planning on at least one student to fail. And there was an exercise that I just felt like I had a really – that I had designed a pretty poor surveillance de- route. Mm-hmm. Like, I just felt like, you know, my route just wasn't good. I felt like I must have surveillance on me and I'm just not seeing them because I didn't design a good route. And again, this is training. But like the thing is, when I look back in hindsight, like I didn't see them. Like I could have turned around and like there was no one there. But I had, there was so much pressure in the course, and and they design it that way too, mm-hmm. that I was doubting myself. And mm-hmm. I knew that it would be worse to, you know, call ghost as they say, like say I had surveillance on me, but there actually wasn't, than to actually miss them and think that I was, you know, black as they say, but I wasn't, right? And so I played it safe, and I made the wrong call. And I still remember sitting pulled over on the side of the road. On on the phone with Ryan and we were newly dating at the time. And I'm just like bawling. Like, what am I going to do? I've been in this class for weeks and I've worked my butt off. I've done every run perfectly. Like it was the night before, like my final run. And I'm like, if I don't make the right call tomorrow, like I'm done, like I'm not going to get certified. And he, of course, you know, was the more seasoned ops officer and, you know, talked me through it. He had been through advanced surveillance detection, had done countless SDRs and, you know, had walked me through that. And so I always had like a good sounding board, you know, with him obviously. So, I mean, he's- He's spoken very highly of me, but obviously he's you know very seasoned and, and was helpful I, as I was learning.
3: I, I, I want to return a little bit to this subject because I just think this is a unique opportunity to talk to the two of you at the same time like this. Uh, that you were out in the field doing ops together and there are good I, I imagine good reasons that they keep operations and analysis separate from one one another to avoid you know contamination and things but I mean is there having based on your own experience is there a case to be made for a further sort of blending uh, or moving I i guess what I'm trying to say is I, I realize anal- analysts aren't supposed to run operations but is there a case to be made for further um Pushing, pushing more in the direction that you two went in.
4: I don't think so. I think it's so uncommon. I, I mean, well, and you can speak to ops officers don't like other people coming in and thinking they can do their job. Right, right. <laughs> and 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 usually they can't, you know. So I don't think I think they would cringe at the idea of <laughs> this. I don't know. Yes.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I do <laughs> think that there should be more.
4: Collaboration,
2: collaboration in terms of ops officers bringing analysts when appropriate to mm-hmm. their meetings, like I mentioned previously, to offer
4: that expertise. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: it, it's it's just the the advantage that you get from having a it's like subject a force matter multiplier. Expert. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Being a parent can be really challenging.
3: Can you tell us, I want to hear more about the book, of course. We'll get into that in a sec, but I I can't pass up this story about the mistress that you mentioned to me. Could you tell us about that? Sure. So, you know, this is another story. So I'm a
2: director of corporate security. And so a a lot of what I do and some of the stories that I tell, especially to the employees, um, you know, is to really help them understand, you know, why they might be a target. Mm -hmm. You know, people are getting recruited every day. All over the world, in the private sector, in the government, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I really want, you know, our, you know, my employees to understand, you know, this is something that happens. You know, there there are reasons why people are targeted because, you know, even in private sector companies, you know, they have access uh, to, you know, intellectual property. Uh, confidential information, plans and intentions, five-year strategies, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's really important. So the, the scuba story is one that I, I tend to share, but then, um, you know, the the mistress one is also one I tend to share just because, you know, there's like a subtle smoothness into how this happens, you know, <laughs> and I think this is, this is a good example of, of how it works. And so I was actually at a national day reception overseas And I was in line, you know, I I didn't even know who the person was next to me, but they had asked what meat was being served. I just assumed it was beef (laughs) and, um, and she, she, she spoke up and, and asked what it was and they said it was horse meat. And you know, I grew up with horses. My parents still have horses. I ain't eating horse. You know, it's not something I'm gonna do. But they had already put they had already put it on my plate. And even still to this day, the smell of horse, I can smell it from a mile away. I you guys, I, I really can't. Like, it's
4: such a problem that like I'll get like some sort of pre-made meal at Costco, because that's how I roll these days with my kids. And he'll like he won't say it in front of the kids because he doesn't want them to not eat it. But I notice I'll notice he's not eating and he'll just look at me and be like, and I'm like, it's not horse; it's a stuffed pepper, dude. I'll,
2: I'll I'll get back to the story, but 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 so six months after this event overseas, we we were attending a conference in a conference center building. I'm with like probably six or seven other people, and we open the front door to this conference building, and I stop everybody, and I'm like, guys, I'm telling you, they're serving horse here. <laughs> And and the people are laughing at me like there's no freaking way. How do you even know the smell? I'm like trust me, I know it was on my plate once. I took a bite. Like I'll never forget it. So we walk probably fifty yards around the corner, and that's where the cafeteria. That's where the cafeteria was. And no joke, the special of the day, steak du cheval, horse steak. And so I'm telling you, I, I, I can nail it. But back to the back to the story. She asks what the meat was. It's horse meat. She didn't want to eat it either. And so we're sort of laughing about it. And and we both go and sit down together um, at this reception. One thing leads to another. You know, she's a diplomat. You know, she starts telling me the country that she's from, you know, what she's doing there, some of the other places that she's been. And so I realized, you know, there's, you know, she could potentially be a person of interest with access to information because the country that she was from was uh, a country that we were interested in. And so, of course, I go back. um, I run some name traces on her. We made plans for a second meeting uh, to meet for lunch or or dinner, you know, a few days later. And um, long story short, through clandestine, you know, reporting, I find out that she is the mistress to her president. All right. And so, I mean, this, this is some direct, you know, legitimate access and you know, it was probably one of the, one of the most exciting name traces, you know, (laughs) and reports I got back about a target. Um, And so we, you know, of course, you know, started developmental relationship with this person and, you know, the the story I like to say is just the subtleties of of how we go about this. And so um, I can't remember when it was, it was like a month or two later. And, you know, we were at lunch and we were, there was some sort of event that was happening in the world. And she was just sharing her opinion. This wasn't classified information. This wasn't confidential, but she shared her opinion on on a subject that was happening in the world, you know, and I basically told her, listen, you know, that's, that's a really interesting take. I've never thought of it that way. And in that perspective, you know, do you mind if I share that with, with Washington, I'm not going to, you know associate your name with that information but i'd like to to sort of share that perspective with them you know and the way i said it was purposeful right mm-hmm. you know letting her know that a her information was valuable mm-hmm. b i was going to protect her mm-hmm. you know as the source of the information and she said of course and of course she would say of course because it was just an opinion you know it wasn't it wasn't confidential but right. you know setting those 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 seeds and planting those seeds uh, in the relationship. So the following week we meet back up, you know, and and I basically tell her, you know, Hey, you know, last week I, I shared that perspective with Washington. They loved it mm-hmm. so much. So in fact, you know, <laughs> that I got some financial incentives and, you know, I don't feel like I can keep that to myself, you know, as I got it from you, you deserve at least half of it, if mm-hmm. not all of it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had an envelope, you know, I, I think there was 500 bucks in there. I had an envelope on the table and I, I pushed it across the table <laughs> to her and she picked it up, put it in her purse. She said, I'm, I'm going shopping later. <laughs> right then, right there. I knew, you know, it's, it, it's, it was simple. It was subtle. right? Um, but, you know, she provided information. She received compensation for that information. And wow. so I knew that was the start of a very productive relationship. And, you know, probably the best example i can give for her you know and she always referred to um you know early on in the relationship you know i knew she didn't know that i knew that she was the mistress uh, uh-huh. to her president but she always talked about her you know an uncle uh-huh. that she had you know within senior leadership within uh-huh. the country and an interesting
4: um, choice of words <laughs> and so
2: you know she you know she she basically knew she you know, she was sharing with me that she had, you know, insight, you know, but I, I knew who the, the, the real um, uncle was. Right, right. <laughs> and so <clears throat> she had, t- she was able to tell me, so the, the president was actually picking a senior level government official uh, three months away. And there were six or seven people that were identified in the media and that the world was watching, you know, that potentially that the president would pick. And, you know, we were down, we were sitting down for, for one of our meetings and she's like, Ryan, trust me, it is this person, 100%. The president is picking this person, even though there's six or seven other people that are, that are being debated in the military, I mean, that, be, that are being debated in the media, the president has already chosen this person. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's priceless to be able to know three months in advance through this asset that the president is 100 for sure choosing this individual the due diligence we can do on that individual in advance right. the reporting the assessments you know why is he choosing them who you know what is his you know from an analytical perspective uh, that that leader's profile from that's a leadership some perspective, good
3: pillow talk there in
2: psychology
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> and um and sure enough three months later that's who it was yeah. and, and and that that just you know is a testament especially for an operations officer to have an asset you know that type of validation and that type of corroboration, right? Um, it's it's invaluable.
0: You know, Ryan. Earlier, you had said you talked about when recruiting a source or an asset. You know the the three little you know the three letter word that that you know sometimes you'll say U.S. government, whatever. What are some of the advantages or disadvantages? The myths, you know, whether through Hollywood or whatever else, that that these assets might have about the CIA and things that they think of it and has it been an advantage or a disadvantage when you're speaking with them.
2: On on whether I use those words or
0: not? Yeah, and and how do like what are some of the misconceptions that assets or sources might have about sure. the agency?
2: So I think one of the biggest, and then not just assets or sources, but just the public, you know, the CIA does not blackmail people. We don't. You know, we don't force anyone into a relationship with with us. It's a two way street. Um, you know, I remember, um, I remember Snowden um, was giving um, an example of some situation that was happening in Europe, where and and in the country that he was talking about, you know, where you know the CI officers were planning to get an asset drunk, right? So then, you know, um, the local police service would would, would pick them up you know, and, and put them in jail. And then the agency would then come in and, and, and save, uh, save the asset and, and get the charges dropped. And that would be the start of the relationship. So th- this was one of Snowden's examples um, mm-hmm. from, from his time overseas. And I heard that and I'm like, that's poppycock. Like that would never happen. We would never put one of our assets or one of our sources in jeopardy by helping them to get drunk and then getting putting them in a car to drive mm-hmm. th- that would never happen like drawing attention to them yeah that country that he was talking about we don't have a liaison relationship with mm-hmm. the police or even their intelligence service right and so you know we wouldn't let them know who our target was you know they, they had png'd several of our officers over the you know 10 to 15 year time frame before that time and so it's you know even even people that you know are are in the intelligence field you know, sometimes it's not just the public, even people, you know, like Snowden just didn't understand he wasn't an ops officer. He, you know, he wasn't trained, you know, he didn't have any of this farm training, Uh, but these, these ideas that people have of, of how the CIA, Mm. you know, um, does business is really wrong. You know, Mm. we, we, the lengths that the agency goes through, not just to protect sources and assets, uh, but even, you know, for, you know, for whatever reason, if, 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 you know, they pass away, you know, looking after the next of kin from a financial perspective um it's amazing what they do and so you know blackmail it's not in our playbook you know Uh some other intelligence services they do that you know they try to get um you know people in compromising situations you know on video on tape um, etc etc that's not what we do that's not good for business Uh you know we we want people to know and that we take care of them that we provide for them uh that their security is our, our number one priority and so I, I i'd say that's the big one mm-hmm. um i'd say another one is at least from a an employee perspective the cia is probably the most family friendly organization i've ever been a part of you know i've had some personal issues and in, in situations while serving overseas mm-hmm they have bent over backwards for me time and time and time again. And, and I think most people wouldn't really think of the agency as being family friendly or think of thinking of it in that way. And, you know, I've got multiple examples and experiences um, where that was 100% the case mm. and was so thankful for their flexibility and, and their focus on, on family and, and helping me get through some of those um, personal issues that I had um, overseas. It's, you know, people just don't really see that, you know, that they, they watch the movies and they watch TV shows and, you know, oftentimes we're portrayed in a certain light. And I think assets, you know, also see that and, and, and they're not quite sure. So that's why I think some of them are afraid of hearing those three letters, right. you know, but because as an ops officer, you've created that foundation of trust mm-hmm. you know, and there's something special. And I think this is important to highlight too. There is something legitimately special with an assets first case officer. Mm-hmm. I had an asset that had been on the books for 30 years. And still the fondness by which they speak of that first ops officer that recruited them. It is a bond that transcends time, relationships. You know, there are better ops officers that have worked with them over the years. And not just this asset that I mean and he's still he's officers. still asking like when's
3: bill coming back.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and like wanting to know about Bill. Is he okay? Please give him my best. Yeah. You know, and, and it's that bond, yeah. right? And so, even though they might have some hesitation with actually, you know, helping to commit espionage, you know, and don't want to hear those three letters, right? That bond is so strong. That trust is so strong. And the ops officers have done such a good job of enabling and fostering that trust and foundation to the relationship they they say yes they want to say yes they're, they're destined to say yes um and and i think that i think that's important to note so, um and, and that comes into play into the assessment and you know how you pitch them and whether you say those three letters or not
0: so you don't show up to meeting with a photo of the asset's daughter at school <laughs>
3: Or make nasty, nasty videotapes happen. in a motel room. That kind of thing doesn't happen. <laughs> would never happen.
2: Well, And it's, it, you know, fear is the worst motivator, right? Yeah. Uh, motivated by fear. I mean, you, you can't have a trusting relationship. You have a hostile with- asset. Yeah yeah, built on blackmail, you can't, you know, or or it's, it's, again, it's not good for business. And so that's not something that we do. And I think that's one thing that people are sort of surprised to to hear because they think CIA, you know, assassins and, you know, all this stuff that they see in the movies. And, you know, it it couldn't be further from the truth.
3: You, uh, you told us how, you know, why you left the agency, understandably living that overseas life got difficult and also having a family. Uh, Talk to us about, why you decide to go public, so to speak, and, and write this book and what the book is about.
4: Sure. You know, um, when we left the agency, I always knew that I wanted to write a book. And so it was something that I wanted to pursue and had worked on an initial manuscript myself. And then we came up with this idea together to write this parenting book. And the book I actually have it here. It's called licensed to parent. I don't know the, how the lighting is if you can, oh, there, there you go. go. There we go. Licensed parent, how my career as a spy helped me raise resourceful, self-sufficient kids. And so it's actually part memoir and part parenting guide. And so um, part one is actually tells, you know, a lot of what we talked about today, like my story. So it's all told through my eyes of, you know, how I joined CIA, what my career was like, you know, prior to meeting Ryan as like a 20 something CIA analyst, I describe it as like flea bag meets homeland situation, you know, <laughs> um, a little, little crazy, you know, it was like a work hard, play hard mentality for me. And, you know, my dating life and stuff, I talk a little bit about that. And then kind of explain how I met Ryan. And basically, we decided we wanted to share our parenting technique because when I met him, I noticed that he was doing a lot of things with his three kids differently than I had seen. You know, this whole style of helicopter parenting has become really prevalent um, in, in, our society and has been for quite some time, but I was noticing that he was giving his kids a lot of autonomy. You know, they were making purchases in the store by themselves. They were, um, you know, riding dirt bikes, shooting bow and arrow. They were like these really well rounded security, conscious, mature kids who he was giving a lot of independence. And I realized that it was because he was applying a lot of those CIA techniques, but adapting them to parenting. And so I had like made some mental notes because, you know, I was an analyst and I viewed the world, even though I had done some ops work, I was still a lot more like data driven, you know, black and white had that anxiety. And I always envisioned becoming a helicopter mom or a tiger mom. And I was like, perfectly fine with that. And so I was kind of making some mental notes, like, okay, he's letting his kids do this. You know, they were six, eight and nine when I met them. And I thought, well, you know, the train has already left the station. They all ride motorcycles. That's fine. But my kid won't, you know, like making these mental notes. But what I found was you know, when, so we've since had two additional kids together. So we have five now is that I was having this anxiety after our son was born. And I realized that I needed to find a way to parent from a place of strength instead of a place of fear. And Mm -hmm. so I had viewed like my CIA life as like one sphere. And then my life as a mom, as this totally separate sphere. And really there is so much overlap. I think of it more as a Venn diagram because so much of these skills that we learned at the CIA are really to prepare us for the world, to help us navigate whatever life throws out us, whether it's in operations or whatever it is, you know, as you're out in the field. And really that's what we want to do for our kids. We want to set them up to be successful in life. And we do that through adapting these CIA techniques to teach them, you know, to be well rounded and security conscious. And so we decided to, yeah, go public and tell this story um, so that we could share these tips because, you know, we think that, you know, a lot of people do see things in the movies and stuff about CIA. And we wanted To take this opportunity to really tell, you know, an authentic you know, the story of our careers in a way that really speaks to what we really did there and how applicable these skills are that anyone can use. And we like to say that it's not just for parents because these are skills that everyone should have. You know, all adults should be well rounded and security conscious. It's going to help you have, you know, trusting, successful relationships, whether it's friendships, romantic, professional, you know, and you also want to be security conscious. And so a lot of these things that we talk about in the book, you know, so part one is memoir and then part two, you know, it's also told through like these anecdotes and then practical takeaways for parents, but in order for parents to teach these things to their kids, they have to learn these principles themselves. And it's everything from like what you would think of, like the more physical skills, like how to spot and avoid danger, being prepared for emergencies. But then also, you know, the skills that you don't normally associate with espionage, like how to communicate, how to write. I mean, we talked a lot about, you know, writing up the Intel reports, but then writing analysis. And, you know, those are skills that we want our kids to have. We want Mm. them to be able to communicate. We want them to be able to navigate technology learn this art of persuasion, like Ryan was talking about planting the seeds. So there's just so much opportunity there to like help other parents. And so we wanted to share our story. But I will say there was this moment like a week or two before the book actually came out where I was like, Oh my gosh, like what are we doing? Like why did we do this? Like
1: why are we like
4: <laughs> like this is our story and I had this like immediate like oh this was a horrible idea. But thankfully people have mostly been um you know very wonderful in response, you know, you you always have your trolls, but um sure. but everyone's been by and large really receptive and it's been a great experience and so we've been We've been happy to, to share our story and it feels good to talk about something that was such a big part of our life. And it's mm-hmm. still a part of our life and the way that we raise our kids. And our four-year-old is on a motorcycle, I will say. <laughs> so I, I came around and that's the thing, like in the book, I do kind of You see how I was skeptical of some of these things, but how I came on board with them. And it's not because, you know, in the CIA, they ride motorcycles or shoot bow and arrow. Those are just examples of things that we do to make our kids well-rounded. You know, and we talk about motorcycles as a possible alternative transportation. If, you know, there's an emergency scenario and the roads are impassable by cars, but it doesn't have to be a motorcycle. It can be a regular bicycle or an e-bike or a scooter. There are so many different options. Um, But yeah, I said, I'd never let my kids on a motorcycle, but (sighs) you know things change and you realize your kids are so capable.
0: Do do you feel as though, or can you guys describe the difference between teaching kids to be security conscious and even a a person, a human being, the difference between being security conscious and, and paranoid? Like where is that line? Right.
4: Yeah. You know, I think, um, Like a lot of people, if they hear about our book, like they would initially think like, oh gosh, you know, this is like teaching to keep your kids, you know, make them paranoid of the world and scare them and like over like, you know, surveilling your kids. And it's actually quite the opposite because we think that by talking to our kids about some of these scenarios in age appropriate ways, instead of in- being intimidating, it can become empowering. And of course, one of the main ways that Ryan was doing this when I met him, and we've continued is through incorporating fun and adventure. And so there are like ways that you can introduce some of these topics at young ages that make it fun so that then it evolves as they grow up and it's just done like organically. None of the skills are learned in a vacuum, but they become these like building blocks in this organic way that our family just lives their lives, right? Like we have kids, five kids ranging from three to 18 right now. And we call them the the three bigs and the two littles. And so like the bigs, they've been learning these things their whole life, mm-hmm. but it's just such a part of like how Ryan has instilled this like spirit of adventure in them, that they're not paranoid. It's just, they know like if something were to happen, they know what to do. It's it's kind of instilling this idea of thinking critically, which is mm-hmm. such a big deal at the agency as well.
2: well what's funny too, is that it, it's just been so organic that it's just part of who they are and they just assume other kids know these things too and it's been funny to watch our teenagers especially when you know we're going on vacation and, and they're bringing their friends with them you know and we're having conversations you know around the dinner table or around the campfire or down on the beach and to see the surprise in my kids eyes when they're talking to their friends about a topic and like they don't know anything about it and and they're like wait a minute you know like whether it's you know, um, loyalty or promises or getting off the X, you know, or persuasion, you know, they've been given these skills that not that they've taken for granted, but in in many ways they have, because again, it's just been part of their daily life. Right. And, And it's, it's only when they've talked to their friends and started asking questions and, and having me there too. And then their friends are starting to ask me questions. Oh, I wish my parents would do this. Oh, I wish my parents would do that. That I, I've seen my kids look at me, and they're like, "Oh, okay," you know. <laughs> we've been set up for success here.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's fantastic
4: we talk about, you know, different ways to use this with your kids. And I think one of the great ways is that because we have, we've had, you know, toddlers and teenagers at the same time, that we're in these like different life stages all at once. And so we talk about, you know, ways to introduce this idea with a three-year-old, but then ways to, to talk to your teenagers about it, you know, and because everything is different depending on your kids' ages, but also depending on families, you know, families are going to have different levels of comfort, you know, with things in the book. And we just kind of encourage people to take what works for them and adapt it to their their Family to what extent feels comfortable.
0: Yeah, Jack and I were talking about writing a book on parenting uh, from the ranger perspective, but we only got so far as suck it up,
3: put uh, the dirt on it,
0: and uh, walk it off. Yeah face out and drink water uh and uh <laughs> want to take <laughs> some
3: it. uh some questions yeah we got some
0: questions uh, no the book sounds absolutely fascinating we're sorry that normally we have an opportunity to read uh, people's books but i don't think we received a yeah. copy we'll we'll get one yeah. from but Christina. we will get yeah, one and that. it I sounds fantastic sure yeah um richard thank you uh love he says love linguist exclamation points uh, she's pushing resilience um uh and you uh, in uh, dicky discord's dailies ryan what does c- corporate security entail
2: so c- corporate security i mean it depends on the company of course you know there's there's companies that have a small corporate security program you know to medium to large but basically it's you know securing personnel securing facilities and securing you know intellectual property whether that's physical uh, whether that's electronic etc cetera, etc cetera. and so it's it's people places you know, an IP product, uh, again, depending on the company that you have. And it involves, um, you know, also developing policy, uh, developing training, I think probably the most important aspect of security, especially from a corporate security perspective is training employees, you know, socially, you know, having a security culture there and socializing, you know, security awareness, um, and a lot of these, these security principles for them, uh, because, you know, through training, you're then equipping employees to be uh, proactive you know and, mm-hmm. and preventative as opposed to reactionary and so that's that's something that i i've, I've stressed at amazon uh and at siegen where i'm uh currently the director of corporate security uh training is probably the most important aspect of any corporate security program and ensuring that the employees are also equipped uh to handle you know any incident or situation that unfolds yeah. uh, and to, and to empower them as well uh
0: jackson thank you uh what was your experience uh, with ground branch like additionally how difficult is it for a case officer to become a blue badged PMOO in ground branch
3: Guy's yeah, looking for career advice
0: yeah so um, definitely ground
2: branch is, is made up primarily of former military personnel uh-huh. um, I was not in ground branch but definitely did uh, some ops uh, with some of them you know ground branch they're, it's prim- they're primarily Located sort of, you know, in the sandbox type areas, uh, war zones, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, you definitely need, um, you know, preferably a military background. There are some people that don't have a military background in there, uh, but for, I'd say the most part, most of them do. Um, and so, you know, that, that's definitely a, a priority to have. Um, how to actually get in, um, you know, that I don't know. Um
4: I don't know a lot of people who transitioned from that to TV. I don't
3: know. Yeah, and there, there's um, like public recruiting, just like there is for any other job in the in the agency yes. to go into SAD. If if people, you know, you're retiring yeah. out of the military, there's a whole program to get you into that. Well, uh, the
4: website is great. There's so many resources about. It's like a lot of people often don't realize, like you can actually find so much about like the different career tracks. For CIA Online. um, And and
3: it's not like a secret or mysterious or anything like that. Like, Christina's not being facetious. Like, there really is a website. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Yeah,
4: actually, it's funny because when I have to tell this story, when I first started, this is like, it's in the book. It is embarrassing, I will say. But my first day at headquarters, so I had done all of my like processing at satellite buildings. And my first day I was going into headquarters and I had never been, and I was like 21 years old. I had like very little life experience, which is why I got through the door so quickly. I hadn't really been anywhere apart from Africa. And, um, and my parents had like, this was like MapQuest days, you guys. And so like my parents had like MapQuested it and printed it out for me, but like, they didn't tell me that they didn't put in the address. Like, I think they I don't know, like my stepdad just put in like some random like coordinates close to the agency. I don't know what happened. There was some sort of communication breakdown. And so I had this idea that like I had made a wrong turn and I'm like in the woods. It's like winter times. It's like still dark before sunrise is early in the morning. And I'm like, so flustered. It's my first day of the CIA. I don't know where I am. I don't have a cell phone with like, you know, Google maps on it because that was, you know, a while back. And I just remember being in the woods thinking like, it's going to be like hidden somewhere. It's like, Like, you know, it's back here. And like, I get back on the main road and I see like the huge sign and it's like, you know, the George, you know, Bush Central Intelligence Agency. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) it was just
1: like, oh
4: man. So yeah, that was the beginning of when I learned how to think critically. (laughs) So I use that as an example in the book of like, you know, teaching our kids, you know, what to do when technology fails and, you know, being able to think critically and improvise so that you can kind of figure it out. And that's an example of what not to do. But yeah, sometimes we think some of these things are so secretive, but there is a lot online and there are so many resources as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jackson, thank you again. Uh, to follow up, how different is the role between a Green Badger contractors and Blue Badger staff officer, which is considered more difficult to attain?
4: The Blue Badge, yeah, definitely yeah. Blue Badge.
2: You know, um, you know, there, there's Green Badges, and um, yeah, I mean, it, definitely, it, it's highly competitive to get in. You know, I think even more so now. Um, yeah, I mean, I th- I th- there are. There's not necessarily tricks to get in, but there's definitely things that you can do to help prepare yourself. I mean, since we've left, we've actually helped quite a few people get into the agency, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are even now already through the farm and already serving overseas, you know, on tours. Oh, that's great. Uh, and so, you know, one of the one of the things that I suggest people do uh, first off before anything else, get the book Inside the CIA by Ronald Kessler. Because when you start going through uh, the telephone interviews, et cetera, et cetera, they're going to tell you to get this book. Mm-hmm. So if you have that book in advance and you've read it, you know you're already ahead of the game. Uh, the second thing I'd say is get a subscription to the Economist. You need to be well versed in what's happening around the world. And when you get and, and when you progress through a lot of these interviews, they're they're going to flat out ask you, you know, what tell me what's going on in Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, who's who, who's who's the president or prime minister of this country? And you need to be able to speak competently. About current events and what's happening around the world. Uh, the third thing I'd say is be honest with yourself on who you are and how you view and perceive the world and what your strengths are. You know, if talking to people at a diplomatic reception scares you, you know, if you're not able to hold natural conversations with people, you know, or if you really are sort of very black and white and structured in how you live and think and view the world. Being an ops officer probably isn't for you. If you don't like traveling, you know, that's not for you. Um, if you love to write, you know, if analysis um, and sort of, you know, that subject matter expert um, role is, is something that really speaks to you, then maybe it, maybe the DI or the DA is something that 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 you know um, you know you should you should move forward to. And so there, there's some subtle things that that you can do to sort of. Um, understand what you might be qualified for, um, and, and what might be easier for you to attain. And then I think if you're honest with yourself, and you find those roles and that speak to you um, naturally, then you know that's definitely the role that you should go down. There are people that you know that might just be an SME, you know, and you know they're they're so black and white, but they just want to be an ops officer, you know, and they're going to do anything they can to do it and um you're gonna get weeded out at the farm yeah right um and people get kicked out all the time right yeah. uh, there's we call them the murder boards halfway through kicked out there's people that even get kicked out at the very end a lot of people self-select out right mm-hmm. like so you, you're you're down there in training and you just realize you know what this just isn't for me you know or you know you fail and, and this is something that we talked about in the book too but Um, you know, failure is so important at the farm, you know, they they teach through failure, Mm -hmm. you know, it's through failing, you know, oftentimes that's how you learn the best. And so people that aren't accustomed to failing and people that don't take criticism well, you're not gonna make it through the farm. It doesn't matter how good you are. You know, if you can't accept criticism from your instructors, if you can't learn when you've made a mistake and do better next time, you're gone. And, and I've seen those people gone. And so you, that mindset is also really, really helpful. And then understanding the idea of, of perfection be perfection is the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. You know, knowing when good is good enough mm-hmm. and people that get fixated on writing the perfect report or doing the perfect op, they're going to spend way too much time doing that. And then they're up to one in the morning, two in the morning, trying to write it, mm-hmm. you know, or strategize for it. You know, and then they get little sleep. And then the next day they're up at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., you know, and then they're making mistakes the following day because they're tired. Mm -hmm. So knowing when good is good enough and not trying to be perfect, you know, it's it's not just extremely useful for the farm, but it's a life skill. You know, Mm -hmm. even even in corporate America, uh, it's an important lesson for people to know.
0: If somebody had their sights fixed on working for the CIA, they're like, I want to serve my country. I want to be part of this organization. But I don't know what I want to do there. I don't know what I would be good at. Can, can they just apply and trust that, that the recruiters, you know, if, if they like their skills, that the recruiters will pick a place for them or do they have need to have an idea where they want to go?
4: I don't know. I mean, it's been a while since we've gone through the recruiting process, but I mean, I think they do need to kind of select specifically what they're going for because mm-hmm. I think each application process is is a little different. The interview process like the things Ryan went through and his interview process is very different from what I went through. I mean, it's possible in some situations someone might interview for something and if the recruiter, you know, thinks like, "Okay, well this person was interviewing to be, you know, an OO, but I actually think they would be better fitted." Like it's possible that they would like You know, pass on the resume to a Mm -hmm. different recruiter. But I would say the more you know what you want to do by doing that careful research and target, you know, your path, the better chance you have of making yourself competitive.
2: And, And I'd also say, too, you know, at the agency, you compare it with any other company in the private sector, all those roles are there, you know, whether you're talking about human resources whether you're talking about PR, you know, there's even medical doctors at the agency. Mm-hmm. And so anything that you do in the private sector, there's equivalent jobs at the agency that you can apply for, you know, that are just sort of normal logistics, you know, mm-hmm. for example, support functions. Um, you know, and and for, and for for those listeners that may not know, you know, there's four primary directorates at the agency. There's the Directorate of Operations, there's the Directorate of Analysis, uh there is the Directorate of Support, and then there's the Directorate of Science, Science and Technology, and those are the four major directorates, which you know all jobs fall under, and um, you know staff employee, you know blue badge type jobs, and you know there's everything under the sun there. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, fascinating, uh, Jerry. Thank you very much. As an agency analyst, did you create a spider web? Uh, so I think like a link analysis. Uh, when you were working on something, I'm sure you know what I mean. Oh, like carry and
3: uh with a colored yarn. Oh, is that what it yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. You know, we used a lot of different um stru- we call them structured analytic techniques where sometimes you would do things like that and um yeah, ways that you can kind of um look at different analytic um situations like you know analysis of competing hypotheses and scenarios analysis and um there's a really great book but now i can't even remember the title but um about some of these analytic techniques and i think it's called like maybe it's just called structured analytic techniques but it's available cuz i've since left it was one that we used in training and you can get it um but yeah there were so many different techniques a lot of you know that kind of stuff that um you know with the like on homeland that would be more in like ctc like counterterrorism or like people who are doing targeting like i was doing less of that i was doing more like you know like i said analysis of competing hypotheses or doing like playing out scenarios you know for an upcoming election that looked like there's going to be violence and so we're playing out or we did, theory know, stuff yeah yeah or we did like a technique called like what if you know and we'd look at like what if this president dies you know what would what would happen you know, there, what would the situation be? So yeah, I didn't do like a ton of those specifically like linking people together. But I know that there are analysts that, you know, are more on like the counterterrorism track and targeting that would do stuff like that. We used like an array of analytic techniques.
0: That's actually something that we didn't ask you about. And we really haven't, I don't think discussed it with anybody on the show before this. As as, uh, an analyst, what, how long was your training? And what was that like when you went to work for the agency?
4: So we go through something called the Career Analyst Program. And so it's several months long. I want to say it's like Four months long, but it's been it's been a minute <laughs> and I, who knows what it is these days. Um, but yeah, you go off to training just like, you know, case officers go down to the farm to be op certified. Analysts go through analytic training and it's very rigorous. But what's interesting is I think the messaging is very different in terms of like the way the DO approaches it. Like they're planning for you to fail. They're making it very high stress for you. And there is some of that too. You know, they are making high stress situations because you're going through these like task force, these fictitious scenarios where you're being tasked different things things and your, you know, role-playing and briefing, you know, your instructors who are pretending to be policymakers. So they do create like this stressful environment with these time constraints. But at the same time, like they're also telling you like, you're awesome. You're here because you are the cream of the crop. You are the smartest people. So I think like early on, like in the DI with analysts, like there is sort of this messaging that like you are better than analysts at other Intel agencies. You are better than your DO counterparts because you're the Smart ones. Mm-hmm. And so there is kind of this kind of like uppity, like looking down on the OOs as like knuckle draggers <laughs> and you know, we're the experts. And so it's different, you know, because you're being told how awesome you are, but then you are getting like really critical feedback and edits. Like so you have to be someone who can take edits and bite your tongue, uh-huh. you know, because you're gonna get tons of them on your papers because they're teaching you how to write. And you're going through these like high stress scenarios. But I would say, unlike the DO, they're not planning for you to fail. Like they really are, you know, trying to like teach you as much possible, but as possible, but it's a different kind of method. And I think that's why it was so difficult for me then transitioning like to some of that DO training because the messaging is a lot harsher. And so you really have to have like a thick, I mean, I had a thick skin when it came to like my edits, um, but you had to have a thick skin in just kind of a different way. Um, and so a lot of people can't kind of make that transition because I don't know. I like to be, I like to be in an environment where I feel like I'm built up and not like set up to like fail so that you can be the class example because that sucks, (laughs) but I also learned from it. And so I know that there's a method to the madness, but I think probably like a happy medium, which is what we try to do for our kids. You know, we try to give them room to fail so that they can experience failure, but then also give them opportunities like to build confidence through like tiny wins, like in other places. Right. Um, but not that everybody gets a trophy and you're the, cream of the crop and you can you know <laughs> right. it's like a, a middle of the spectrum i think between the two uh
0: john uh john dagan uh great episode cheers thank you john appreciate it um let's see here uh jerry j thank you very much uh did you ever have a uh, have a situation uh where you were working on something and others guys from the other from a different brand screw you up
4: like a different intel agency. Either maybe? that,
0: yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. I mean, from an analytic, I mean, you can speak from Os perspective, but from an analytic perspective, there were oftentimes where we didn't see eye to eye with other agencies, and when you were writing for the PDB, you had to coordinate. The product because it was considered an intelligence community product once it goes in the PDB, but of course written primarily by whatever agency, and you would coordinate with these other agencies. And you know there were times where you just didn't see eye to eye, and you'd have to like sometimes people would do a um what is the word like um not a uh, like when you disagree. Starts with the uh, I don't know it's escaping me, but you would do like something at the bottom um, or included in the piece saying like this agency disagrees with this analysis, but you really try not to have something like that because people try to be like as collaborative as possible. A rebuke. Had... What's that?
3: That there's a rebuke in the analysis.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A um,
3: or disclaimer. Or
0: something. Yeah,
4: not disclaimer. Yeah. I don't know why I'm. And, and I just, just for
0: people watching, you might not know the talk about the PDB, the Presidential Daily Brief. So this is the intel product being put together by different agencies going to the president for his daily briefing. And if there's a disagreement between different agencies about how, what this Intel means or the analysis or, or anything else like that.
4: Yeah, it, that'll be called out, but I don't think I had any other like big, I don't know. You might've had something or something's gone wrong.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think one thing to note that people may not realize in, is that, you know, overseas, for example, CIA has primacy in country. Um, domestically in the u.s you know it's the fbi and so oftentimes you know depending on an operation um you know there's some conflict there you know and and there there, there is there is some healthy natural tension between the fbi and the cia you know I, i'd say the fbi is more law enforcement but mm-hmm. sometimes they try to play uh, an intelligence you know game and, and they do have some intelligence capabilities but um
4: Descent. Descent. dissent dissent sword. Yeah. Uh. <laughs>
2: But um, no, overseas, you know, it's it's especially overseas, you know, I didn't experience anything like that um, just because it, it's it's structured, you know, e- even us, you know, as CIA officers, we just can't go to another country. You know, let's just say I'm in a European country and I, and I want to go to Asia on vacation. You can't unless you get approval from that station mm-hmm. in whatever country you're visiting in Asia, that it's OK for you to be in country because there could be operations going on. There could be. You know, senior government officials from the US, you know, going into that country and having an additional CIA officer there could compromise something. And Mm so, um, you know, travel is restricted in many ways uh and you've got to get approvals uh just to make sure things uh, are deconflicted.
4: i think that's one of the like liberating factors of not being in anymore you know of course when there's not a global pandemic going on right. you know if we wanted to like pick up and leave and go anywhere in the world tomorrow you know we could and we don't have to ask anyone for permission and i think that i don't know that's like a good feeling to me even if i never go anywhere <laughs> i like just sort of knowing that no one like has control over my life in that way anymore i
0: don't know. Now- Granted that you don't need anybody's permission, but due to previous trips or previous travel or or maybe if you traveled someplace in alias, are there concerns about, you know, what happens if I pass through Heathrow and have biometrics or what or we can't we can't take we can't take the family on a vacation to this place. Like, are those considerations that you have to? <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. We're we're laughing because yes, that is a problem. But like Ryan traveled somewhere in Alias that I would really love to go to, and I've had um, an opportunity to go, and it hasn't worked out for other reasons. But I will go at some point. But he won't be with me <laughs> for that exact reason. And I still remember when he did the ops trip there, and he was planning it out because we were on the tour together, and I was like reading the ops cable. I'm like, you can't go there. We're gonna go there. We're gonna have this there. And he's like well, this is like the best place for my meeting. And I'm like, but you're going in Ailey's like, Oh, it'll be fine. And yeah, that's definitely a concern, especially with biometrics. And
2: it's a, it's a problem, you know, you know, with the, the advent of technology, you know, I think from an espionage perspective and intelligence operations, you know, not just the CIA, but other intelligence services, we're having to go old school, yeah, you know, just having a phone on you, on you having any type of technology on you, it's easier to be compromised yeah and so um you know you have to think twice before you go somewhere especially in alias you know sometimes even in true name uh depending on what your cover is and you know technology is great it helps us especially from a sigint perspective um but you know it's it, it causes problems and, and, and it, hap- it hampers different types of operations depending on what it is and what's going on
3: sure uh, Stuart says, ask to explain the true test of a recruitment is surviving the first turnover.
2: That's so true. 100%. Yep. And, and, and the funny thing, is, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I know of, of instances where, you know, someone's been formally recruited, right? And then there's a turnover to, to the new ops officer that, you know, just arrived in country. And uh, the turnover happens, You know, and then it's the first meeting, you know, between the new ops officer and the asset, and it's clearly evident the asset doesn't really know (laughs) that they've been formally (laughs) recruited. You know, this doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. It's like shit. Right. You know, I gotta clean this shit up. Right. You know, and 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 get this thing back on track. Uh, That did happen to me once. (laughs) <laughs> you know, they. Like
4: you were the one who received the new case. I,
2: yeah, yeah, I received the new case, and it was it was clear that this dude had no idea, you know, <laughs> how far in he was. That's and, hilarious. <laughs> um, I, I had to I had to pick up the pieces a little bit there. It was it was a little frustrating. Uh, and, and 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 just on a side note, this asset. So in training, there's something called um, the four minute window that you you have to show up to an operational meeting. You know, if it's at five o'clock, you need to be there between four fifty eight and five o two. You know, and that's what we're trained to. In the real world, that rarely happens. But this asset, this asset would never show up on time. Like, no joke, an hour late. Once he was two hours late, and some of the excuses that this asset had were just it was mind blowing. Um, some of the things that he pulled out of a hat to explain, you know, why he was so late to some of these meetings, but yeah, that does happen unfortunately. Sure. And, uh, and so that's why it, it's true. You know, the, the, the true test is whether they're successfully turned over and the intelligence is continually produced.
3: Right. Uh, Jerry asks, what do you think about the agency outsourcing most of the jobs to contractors? Maybe that is a problem. Maybe they just can't keep up with the new stuff. I guess he's asking if the agency over um, relies on contractors too much.
4: I don't know what the, yeah, what context. the current, I don't know the context or what the current like reliance on contractors would be, but I didn't work with a ton of contractors when I was there, to be perfectly honest. I think I encountered them sometimes, but, you know, more often than not, I was, it was really, staff officers so yeah
0: well
2: and at cia headquarters definitely there's tons of contractors there um and so you know but overseas no you know yeah. i mean some war zone areas you know we do have contracting security personnel etc and but um, it's, it's more prevalent at headquarters. There are a lot of contractors there um, that are contracted by the agency, but then also other contractors that are contracted by by other agencies and uh, and other companies, et cetera, et cetera, to serve those roles and those functions. And so what what the current numbers are, I'm not quite sure, but definitely not overseas.
0: I know a big thing for, I mean, at least for like the NSA and like the SIGINers, the military SIGINT people who would work at the NSA or whatever, you know, they, they would... Finish up their tour with the military, yeah. and then you know get a job with whomever. I, I don't know who hires them. Whether it's SAIC or Raytheon or whomever. But then they'd show up the next day, sit in the exact same seat, oh, making yeah, making yeah. three times as much money. But you know, but, but they were at that point they were a contractor, but they were so just
4: yeah, yeah. I definitely same thing, thing at the agency. Those, yeah.
2: You know, someone retires on a Friday, yeah, right, and then they come back on Monday as a contractor. Right. So it's. Yeah, you know, th- that those,
4: those
3: companies exist, and that definitely happens for sure. Uh, headquarters, Gopez uh, says, great insights. Would you let your kids join the agency or the IC? How would you guide their journey to entry? Yeah,
2: I mean, if if they wanted to, and we've talked about this before, we, we're definitely supportive. You know, I think you know language skills, uh, especially for what we both did, are really important, and not just language skills, but exposure to to life overseas and different cultures i mean it can't be stressed enough you know it's not for everybody you know learning a new culture and learning new languages moving every two to three years especially if you're doing overseas tours it, it's not for everybody but then there's some people that just love traveling they, they, they love exploring and having new adventures and learning languages and, and learning uh, about new cultures And so I'd say, you know, that's probably, that's something we've encouraged, you know, our kids to do when we can, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, we, we haven't really, this is the longest I've gone in my adult professional career without traveling overseas since this pandemic started. And so I'm looking forward to where things, you know, truly open up and things are a little bit easier, but.
4: I mean, I think, yeah, we would love it. I mean, if our kids decided to to go that route, you know, so I think we've been, I mean, we've talked to them, I mean, since the bigs were eight is when Ryan first told them that he worked at CIA when he was still there. And we talk about that in our book in terms of the context of trust and loyalty and, you know, trusting an eight-year-old with information, you know, that you're working undercover, mm-hmm. I mean, can sound like a really big deal to someone who doesn't understand, you know, how we approach trust and loyalty in our family from, a, so, very
2: early age. from a very <laughs> early
4: age and so by the time they're eight, they are are ready for that information. So it's something that, you know, we've talked with them openly about, and I think they have a really good understanding of the different roles of the agency. And I don't know, I don't know if any of them will go that route. I mean, our, our four-year-old son, who's almost five, he was saying for a while that he wanted to be a spy. Um, Because we told them, obviously, we weren't there anymore. So they've known since they could talk, you know, that mommy and daddy used to be spies. But now he says he wants to be a writer like mommy, which I think, (laughs) you know, obviously means he's going to be an analyst. So I feel really good about that.
3: (laughs) All right. uh, Last question here. Uh, Tim asks, if someone had a choice between the uh, intelligence community and law enforcement agencies, what would you say that would make them select the CIA versus the others, assuming they had offers on the table at the same time?
2: That's a really good question. And in fact, that's not the first time I've been asked this question. Of
4: course we're biased. So, I mean, you know what we would say to <sighs> do, but I think it depends on what it is you're wanting to do and the, and because, and recognizing that they're very different missions and, you know, what appeals to you most, you know, whether it's collecting foreign intelligence or kind of that law enforcement working, you know, towards different types of targets, you know, crime. And,
2: and I think it goes back also to this personnel, like, Be truthful with yourself. Like, what's your personal personality assessment? Because what is law enforcement? It's
4: very black and white. Law enforcement is very
2: black and white. It's rule following. There are laws, you know, and people break those laws. And then you conduct an investigation. You gather evidence that, which then leads to prosecution. It's it's very very black and white. Well, Mm -hmm. I think
4: that can be good for someone who wants like clear definitions of like good guy, bad guy. Mm -hmm. This is good. We're doing this. Whereas like at the agency you know you do i mean even as an analyst you have to have an element of living in the gray because you have to understand that there is a greater good for what you're doing and like it's the whole like to the ends justify the means and you know because no matter how genuine you are in creating these relationships with assets your ultimate goal is espionage and you're getting information from them so there's there's no way around it that there is manipulation involved and so you know whether you're directly doing that as an ops officer or you're analyzing information that was Cleaned and collected in that context as an analyst, you know, you have to be okay with that. And I do remember as an analyst you know, there were times where I really kind of struggled, you know, just with kind of like the larger meaning of like what it was we were doing. And like, you know, there were there were times where I did certain assignments where I was exposed to more of like the counterterrorism stuff. And, um, and that was hard for me. And so I think what Ryan's saying, like understanding yourself and what you're able to do and what you're comfortable with and how your personality is driven. And if you can live in that world of the gray and be comfortable with that and the answer of it depends and understand like the whole mission behind you know, intelligence organizations, then you would know if you could go that route, you know, law enforcement is very different and the types of personalities, you're going to meet a lot of people there that have that black and white personality. So if that's you, then that might be a better fit.
0: What? what, but if, what would, if, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Ryan. I, I gonna say, you know, but if,
2: if you live in that world of gray, you know, if there's not necessarily right and wrong, right. <laughs> right. And if you can deal with ambiguity very well, and if you enjoy, You know, potentially traveling overseas and and you have those language skills and, and desire to learn new cultures, you know, I would say lean more towards the intelligence community.
4: Well, there's so many opportunities, I think, within the intelligence community as well. I mean, you know, it's not always easy to move around, right? There can be roadblocks, you know, going from one directorate to the other, depending on what's going on in that time frame. But I mean, people aren't necessarily wed to whatever directorate they start in. I definitely have several friends, you know, one who switched from DO to DI and a couple that went the other way, which is, you know, less frequent. But I even have a friend that switched from um, the DI to um, the DS, you know, and so people end up finding something that's a better fit for them. And I just think like there really is something for everyone at the agency. So I don't know, I would, we're biased, obviously we say go the intelligence community (laughs)
2: route. And (laughs) and there were also police officers that went to the farm with me, you know, former police officers, there were FBI people, you know, that were in the FBI, but then they made the transition to, you know, to CIA. And I'd say there's more of that than you know, CIA officers going to FBI or CIA officers going to be a police officer. Yeah,
3: it reminds me of a uh, we did an interview with Jeff Butler, who was a, a SEAL, and then he was a ops officer, and he got out for a lot of the same reasons you did—family reasons, wanting to be home around his kids. And Jeff was like, he ended up going to the fire department. He was like going to be a police officer after I had a whole career in the CIA as a professional liar. Like, I I, I just can't I can't do that. It doesn't it doesn't jive. No. Yeah. Uh, so
4: I will say, I mean, there are, I mean, from like Ryan mentioned, the family perspective, there are so many tandem couples and people who do tours overseas with their kids. And, you know, the bigs were able to do that and they grew up overseas and had amazing experiences. And really for us, it was really just a situation of, we, you know, couldn't take the kids with us and we weren't willing to go without them, but, you know, otherwise we would still be in. So like, we would encourage people, you know, if they do have families or they're planning on having families that, you know, not to discount this, because I think it is, you know, possible, and there could be great opportunities for kids overseas.
2: And they take very good care of you from housing to you know, international schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just very family friendly. And, and like Christina said, tandem couples, you know, there, there's a, re- there's a reason why there's a lot of tandem couples at the agency. It's because it's an incestuous organization, you know, uh, dating in the
1: best way, in the best <laughs> way, like
2: dating people from within that understand the lifestyle and understand mm-hmm. the training and what you're going through and realizing you know you might have to go on an op for a week or two, you know, without much contact back home. It, just, it does make life a lot easier dating from within.
3: Sure. Christina uh, and Ryan, show us the book again. Tell us the title. Tell us where people can find it.
4: So the book is called Licensed to Parent. How My Career as a Spy Helped Me Raise Resourceful, Self-Sufficient Kids. And it is on sale from Penguin Random House. And you can read more about it at our website. It's ChristinaHillsburg.com. And on Twitter at christina Hillsby and Instagram at christina Hillsburg. It- and that's where... I post all the updates to our interviews and um, Ryan doesn't do the social media thing. So all of his stuff will be posted on there as well. And um, there's also, you know, a book club kit for those who read the book that you can download from Penguin Random House. There's a link to that on my website. We love popping into book clubs as well, you know, virtually to do Q and a for folks. And um, yeah, so you can learn more about us, reach out to it. It's available wherever books are sold.
3: Okay. So it's out now people can find it wherever they go shopping for books. Is there an audio book? People always want to know.
4: There is. there is. And we narrated it ourselves, which was so fun. Oh, uh, that's fantastic. Is it
3: available in Swahili? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Oh my okay.
1: Gosh, I like it I should hope be. So,
3: right? uh, no, I mean, I, I I always get these kind of like crazy questions. People ask me, is there an audiobook? And then they look up at me after I say yes. Like, is it available in Polish? Oh, my God. Come <laughs> on. I hope
4: so. It's going to be available in um, Ukraine. Wait, 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 Ukraine and. Oh, really? Cool. Taiwan, Hong Kong. And so yeah, awesome. working on international rights and translations. Oh, that's fantastic.
3: Um, and plug your social, important. plug your social media. Where can people find you out there in the world?
4: So on Instagram, I'm at Christina Hillsberg and on Twitter at Christina Hills B. And yeah, like I said, website is Christina Hillsberg.com. And yeah, you can follow all of our updates.
3: And so you're a writer. I mean, is, is there going to be another book? What are you working on now?
4: Yeah, I have a couple proposals okay. of things in the works. And actually, another exciting thing that we're working on, we actually sold rights to Imagine Entertainment, which is Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's production company for a TV's TV series for licensed to parents. Cool. So that's something really exciting that we're involved with the team there on. Um, so, yeah, so a scripted TV series about, you know, a spy couple with kids. And yeah, that sounds fun. That. Yeah. Congratulations.
3: Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. That
0: sounds fantastic. So-
3: a- anything uh, that I-, I have failed to mention? A- any f- final thoughts before we we punch out for tonight? This has been a really fun episode. I really appreciate you guys taking the time tonight.
4: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for
3: having us. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, I want to thank everyone who joined us live tonight and everyone who's going to watch this over the next couple weeks. Really appreciate you joining us tonight. Uh, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to the channel. Hit that little bell icon so you get notified whenever we go live. Um, you can find us on Instagram. If you look down in the description, there's a link to our Patreon. And uh, there's merch, too, if you want to get T-shirts and so on. In next episode, we're going to have Tony Brooks on. Tony is the author of a book. If you guys want to get a head start, Leave No Man Behind, The Untold Story of the Rangers' Unrelenting Search for Marcus Luttrell, the Navy SEAL wound Survivor in Afghanistan. So Tony was one of the SEALs that got spun up to go search for Marcus Luttrell. After uh, the Operation Red Wings, um, you know, debacle. One of the seals. So it's yes, yeah, the seals. So it's uh, it's sort of the untold story about the search and rescue mission after the fact. So I hope you guys will join us next Friday. We look forward to talking to Tony about that. Um, Christina and Ryan, thank you so much again. This has been a really fun episode. Yeah.
4: Thank you so much.
3: And uh, we'll see everyone next week.